Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and I'm happy to see all of you here this evening. Um, it's a real pleasure to welcome Matthew Thomas back to Baltimore. He's a graduate of the Hopkins Writing Seminars, and he also has an MFA from the University of California, Irvine. Uh, and there he received their Graduate Essay Award. His first novel, We Are Not Ourselves, was published a little over a month ago, and it's already um, a New York Times bestseller. It's been long-listed for the Guardian First Book Award and shortlisted for the Center for Fiction's Flaherty Dun Dunnan First Novel Prize, correct? Did I say that right? Okay. Um, I was fortunate enough to get an advanced reading copy, um, which I took with me to the uh, took with me on vacation, and I've passed it around to my neighbors. And I fell in love with this book, and its characters, and Matthew's brilliant writing. Um, and I think you will too. I have copies of the book in the back, and we're selling them for twenty dollars this evening, so it's a real bargain. Um, Please join me in welcoming Matthew Thomas to the Pratt Library. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming out. Uh, it's a huge honor for me to come here. I came here as uh, a student at Hopkins to listen to a reading myself. So um, this is like coming full circle for me. <clears throat> and this room is so gorgeous. It's a huge honor to have it as a backdrop. Edgar Allan Poe also is a huge influence on my thinking, uh, and I teach his stories in my, my classes all the time. So in honor of Poe, I give this reading. Um, a little bit about my book. It's, it follows the course of the life of a woman named Eileen, born Tumulty. She becomes Eileen Leary. She's born in Woodside, Queens, in 1941, and uh, she's the daughter of Irish immigrants. <clears throat> She lives in an apartment building, and uh, I think we have a few more guests coming in here. Is that door locked? or? <laughs> she has a dream for a life that's better than the one she has. Uh, she gets a sense early on that there's more possible, and she goes about trying to pursue that life. The story of the book is the story of her uh, running into obstacles, overcoming some of them, and... Uh, eventually running into something with her husband that they can't overcome and it becomes the story of how they deal with it together. So I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning, a section where Eileen's father takes her to see a friend of his whose job he has gotten for him. Uh, her father is a much beloved figure in the neighborhood. He's uh, something of a fixer. He's a guy who people go to for advice, for help, for jobs, for to be a father confessor. Uh, and he is uh, beloved at the bar and sometimes something of an absence at home, at, which was not all that uncommon at the time. <clears throat> One day, her father took her to Jackson Heights, stopping at a huge cooperative apartment complex that spanned the width of a block and most of its length. They descended into the basement apartment of the super, one of her father's friends. From the kitchen, she looked up at the ground level through a set of steel bars. There was grass out there, blindingly green grass. She asked to go outside. 
Only as long as you don't step foot on that grass, her father's friend said. Not even the people who live here are allowed on it. They pay me good money to make sure it stays useless. He and her father shared a laugh she didn't understand. A frame of connected buildings enclosed a massive lawn girdled by a short, a short wrought iron railing. Nothing would have been easier than clearing that little fence. Around the lawn and through its middle ran a handsome brick path. She walked the roots of the two smaller rectangles and the outer larger one, wending her way through all the permutations, listening to the chirping of the birds in the trees and the rustling of the leaves in the wind. Gas lamps stood like guardians of the prosperity they would light when evening came. She felt an amazing peace. There were no cars rushing around, no people pushing shopping carts home. One old lady waved to her before disappearing inside. Eileen would have been content to live out there, looking up into the curtain-fringed windows. She didn't need to set foot on that grass. Maybe someone would bring her upstairs and she could look down on the whole lawn at once. The lights were on in the dining room of one apartment on the second floor and she stopped to stare into it. A grandfather clock and a beautiful wall unit gazed down benignly at a bowl on the table. She couldn't see what was in the bowl, but she knew it was her favorite fruit. So she conceives of another path, relatively young, and is motivated and disciplined, and works as a nurse with an eye toward nursing uh, administration because she sees it as the road into white-collar status and the professional world. And it's what she, I think, intelligently perceives as one of the only ways in for her, uh, for someone in her station. She meets a man uh, named Ed Leary, who is a research scientist, and uh, he seems to present to her the possibility for the life she's wanted. He's an extremely capable guy. He's a, he's a brilliant research scientist, but he's motivated by different things, and he is uh, not quick to take the opportunities that she would like him to grab. She feels, I think, that if she were born a man, she might have had more of the opportunities than he's had, and uh, it's a source of tension for them. But they love each other anyway. And I'm going to read a little section from 1970, when they go to look at the windows on Fifth Avenue at Christmas time. In December of 1970, she headed to the city with Ed to see the window displays on Fifth Avenue. She was excited to see them, despite how corrosively ironic Ed had been about them the year before, when at one point in his Jeremiah, he'd called them altars to consumer excess. She wasn't about to let his grousing spoil her enjoyment of a tradition she'd observed whenever she could, since she'd first gone with her mother as an 11-year-old. Ed refused to pay for a parking garage. It took them half an hour to find a spot, and they ended up on 25th and 7th, almost a mile from Lord and Taylor. He refused to let them take a cab, even though she was wearing heels and it was 20 degrees out, with a wind that whipped up the avenue. The sun was setting and store gates were being pulled down as if in protest of the cold. The sidewalks of 7th Avenue were unusually empty. She noticed that most of the cabs that passed were occupied. As they neared the store, the sidewalks grew more crowded, the bells of the Salvation Army collectors jingling on each corner. They saw a pack gathered in front, which quickened her step and made Ed sigh and slow down. 
She had been delighting in the scene of a golden retriever pulling at the corner of a wrapped gift when Ed, who had been munching his way toward the bottom of a little bag of roasted nuts, broke the spell. These things seem here for the purpose of entertainment, he said, but really they're here to get you to come in and part with your money. He spoke in a breezy, careless way that suggested he believed a new understanding had sprung up between them. They're like organisms that have evolved elaborate decorative mechanisms to lure you in. People fall for it. It's fascinating, actually. Listen to yourself. The bee orchid, for instance, has flowers that look like female wasps. Males try to mate with it, and in the process, they get pollen on their feet and spread it around. It's not about the window. It's about pulling you into the store. It's about getting you to leave with something. She was attempting to concentrate on the little animatronic girl whose hand was traveling slowly to cover her mouth, which had fallen open at the sight of Santa Claus's ebony boots disappearing up the chimney. It's a stupefying, hypnotic loop. It puts you in a suggestible state. Do you have to be so heady about everything? Do you have to analyze everything to death? What's amazing is that they're exactly the same every year. That's an ignorant remark, she spat. They're not the same at all. They put a lot of work into these, months of planning. She wouldn't have minded his objection so much if he hadn't insisted on drawing her into a dialogue about them. Was it too much to ask to share a moment of joy? She looked around at the other husbands. They didn't look any happier to be there, but they stood back dully, hands folded behind them or scratching their noses. They couldn't have been as cleverly cruel about it as Ed if they'd tried. And the battling of tourists, he said, every year it gets worse the jostling, the jockeying for position. They're descending on the imperial city for their bread and circuses. I wish we didn't have to do this. She started walking to the train. A couple passing in the other direction gave her curious looks as though they could see the intensity of her disgust in her expression. She found herself unaccountably smiling at one man, giving him a manic sort of grin full of the slightly breathless ecstasy of being unmoored, and he returned it with a delighted blush. By the time she felt a tug on her elbow, she was at the next corner. Don't be hysterical, Ed said. I was just making a few observations. The world isn't a lab. Come on, he said. Let's go back and look. In his worn jacket with the frayed sleeve ends, he looked like a war veteran about to ask for change for the subway. You've ruined it. Don't say that. Listen, I can't help myself sometimes. I don't know what's wrong with me. I do, she said. You didn't have enough fun as a kid. He pulled her arm, but she wouldn't budge. She watched steam rise from a manhole cover and felt in her chest the rumbling of a passing bus. She was keenly aware of the limits of the physical world. She wanted to be in one of those scenes in the windows, frozen in time, in the faultless harmony of parts, working in concert, fulfilling the plan of a guiding, designing hand. It would be lovely not to have to make every decision in life, to be part of a spectacle brought out once a year for the safest of seasons and put to work amusing people who stared back in mute appreciation. The real world was so messy, the light imperfect, the paint chipped, the happiness only partial. One of these years, she said, we will come here and you will enjoy it and not make me feel miserable about it. I dream of that. Let's let that be this year, he said. Let's go back and look at those windows. Please, honey, let me make it up to you. It's too late, she said. It's never too late, he said. Don't say that. She hadn't been looking at him. Now she stopped too. Streams of people flowed past in either direction, rushing toward obscure destinations. This was her life right here, petty as it seemed at the moment, and this was the man she'd chosen to spend it with. He was holding his hat in his hand as if he'd taken it off for the purpose of beseeching her, and she saw that he would always have flaws, that he would always <clears throat> be a little too intense in his objections, 
a little too unbending when it came to the decadence of the world. She thought, we can't all wear a hair shirt all the time. But there he was, trying to pull her back to the scene he despised, and she saw that he couldn't live in a way other than the one he thought was right. And when he saw what the right thing was, like now he cared about it as if it were the only thing that mattered. Everyone else around seemed as insubstantial as the air they moved through. The shopping bags they carried, the only things anchoring them to the ground. Did I tell you I love what you did with your hair, he said, and she let herself be mollified because she'd thought he hadn't noticed. She took his hand. They retraced their steps, the street around them thrumming with life. She saw that there was something perfect about the imperfection of her husband. Her mortal living husband with his excessive vigilance about the effects of capitalism and his unmistakable pair of bowed legs that she watched carry him forward. She kept her eyes on his shoes hitting the pavement and let him guide her wherever he was going. Thank you. So I'm here to answer questions if anybody would like me to ask, uh, answer any or speak about any topics if you're curious to hear me talk about them. Yeah, hi. So if it wasn't for Judy, I would not have had the joy of reading your book, which mm -hmm. I think is exquisite. Thank you. And all of a sudden when I finished it, I realized what you had achieved, which is to let us, the reader, me, the reader, come to the conclusion of what was to make the diagnosis. Uh huh. You yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. I. One of my major goals in the book was to create for the reader the experience of the discovery and uh, of 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 Ed's situation and to allow for the possibility that there is a slow realization, just as it is for the people in the life in this family. So thank you. I take that as a high compliment. It's part of why I don't talk about explicitly what I don't talk about what happens to Ed. I, I don't want to steal that from the reader if I if I can avoid that. Yeah. I'm sorry for not paying attention to the whole thing, but the, the window that you were seeing was the Christmas display. Christmas displays, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I didn't say was that Eileen's mother... Uh, what I'm referencing there is that her mother, uh, even in the middle of her worst drinking, uh, managed to have the wherewithal as a parent to take her to see those windows on, on Fifth Avenue at Christmas, and it stuck with her as a symbol of what can happen even in the uh, most difficult times. Yes. Yeah. That's what I was just about to say. I I um I'm fascinated by well I'll repeat it. The the apparent contradiction at times in in any couple I think uh between what looks like a a way that people have calcified to each other and what is the reality of the affection that is that is um evergreen um 
and I'm, I've always been fascinated by that in couples, uh, the way that they can inhabit so many different spheres together, one of which is to be very close in a moment, and another is to be at each other's throats. And, uh, uh, you know, this doesn't negate the love and affection for, for there to be fighting and for there to be discord. Um, and I guess I wanted to try to capture some of that in this book. Uh, the textures of a real relationship are, are not monochromatic. You know, there, there are many colors and there are many, many types of terrain in a real relationship. So uh, thank you again. I Especially for someone like Eileen who doesn't want to ever be embarrassed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she she she's sort of stra- <coughs> strangely nurturing in a way. I mean, uh, she's a tough Irish woman who is not uh, necessarily. Um, she's a nurse, and she's a great nurse, but she's not Florence Nightingale. She would you get the feeling she would be good at whatever she turned her mind to because she's that kind of person. She's a capable person who happens to be a nurse, uh, but uh, and so she she's not overflowing with tenderness, but she is overflowing with love. And uh, I was interested in that distinction because that's one that is not uncommon in the Irish community. This, you know, a lot of feeling that doesn't really get an outlet necessarily. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, <clears throat> I was thinking of a lot of different things with it. Um, first of all, it's taken from Lear, um, which we know is the the Ur text for uh, charting the course of a mental discombobulation. Um, and the the family name Leary is not an accident in that regard. Um, I'll just speak about names for a second. I, I never really talk about this, but as long as we're talking about it, it's fun for me to do this. Eileen, her name, Eileen, <coughs> suggests a kind of tropism, a leaning toward something, a leaning into something or a leaning in a certain way. She has a, tend- a tendentiousness in her personality, and she she leans in her early life uh, toward the, the tumult of her youth uh, in a way and away from it actually um, the tumult is in that name uh, the, her early years are colored by a lot of upheaval and as she gets older um, she gets a little more conservative in her choices deliberately and she becomes more leery I think L-E-E-R-Y so she leans in that in that way in her in this sort of middle part of her life and a little bit toward the end of her you know the the life in this book uh leery of change leery of uh a lot of things but the title so uh these people are are made to not be themselves at their best selves i guess by circumstance uh the way disease the way upheaval forces us out of um our best our best selves uh also this notion that people are always coming into being that we are not ourselves fully yet at any point and eileen demonstrates the capacity for growth even in a late stage of her life when when she uh i think in the in the last scene in the book that she's actively a player in she uh i think surprises us with her ability to uh have an empathetic moment uh where she you know she just 
puts aside her fears. And it's not that she's not capable of that. I mean, we see that she's a good person, but we see that she has fears and anxieties, and she, her character comes out. She's rooted in goodness and kindness. And uh, while she might be afraid and uh, scared of change, she, at, it, when the chips are down, she's going to embrace humanity and life. And then finally, um, most importantly to me, we are not only ourselves. We are not islands unto ourselves. We, we exist in relationship. We only experience the full flowering of our humanity in relationship to other people, and we need each other. So there's a, in my mind, there's a, there's a sense that we are not actually ourselves. We are all of us in the collective humanity that we participate in, and that's when we achieve really being alive fully as people. Uh, and, I, you know, you see people in this book in different ways at different moments in the book isolated in, their, in themselves. And that isolation causes tremendous pain for Eileen, for Ed, and for Connell, all of them. I wanted the book to be an appeal to love each other, I think. And, uh, you know, the physical embrace is so important, the hug. I tried to underscore that in the book a few times. Yes. I uh, I agree to vicariously live through the Irish or Irish. yeah, yeah, I have I mostly Irish extraction. There's a little Welsh in there, it's where I get the name. Somebody went over to Wales and married someone and came back, from what I understand. So I'm mostly I mean ninety eight percent Irish, but the Welsh name dominates anyway. Um but yes, that's that's the the main for me is Irish. Yes. I have. Yeah, my father had it. Yeah, and uh, died of that. So I don't know that I would have been able to write as um, from the inside as much had I not had that experience. Um, yeah. My father was a great man. He was a, well, the, the thing that I think, uh, when I say great, I mean really lovely person. Um, probably the, uh, you know, you can't choose your parents. Um, it's the luck of the draw. And I was very lucky to have a father who was very tender-hearted. Uh, it shaped me in ways that are incalculable uh, and has, uh, I think, everything to do with my writing in the first place. Um, so it was hard to watch him leave. And I tried to capture some of the spirit of that man, not exactly in Ed, but the, the soul of that man, I think, comes alive in Ed a little bit. Yeah. He was around the same age that Ed is, around 50. Um, and he died when he was 62, I believe. Yeah. As you talk about your writing process, which I've read, sure, yeah. Well, for so. thank you. Um, but it's pretty unusual. It is unusual. Uh, it's the longest overnight success in the history of overnight successes. <laughs> I took ten years to write this book, and 
Ten years, yeah. Ten years of just actually writing this particular book, but even before that I was writing short stories that were unconsciously mining some of this material. Um, stories that maybe two sentences out of 25 pages are preserved in an edited, reduced form in this book. Um, finger exercises on the way toward working up the courage to start this book. I started this at the end of my time at Irvine. My last submission to workshop was uh, the very first thing I wrote on this novel. I think as I got away from, as I, was, as I knew I was getting away from workshop, I had the courage to take this on because I knew I wouldn't have any more readers for a long time. Uh, and uh, that was a relief. Uh, I wrote by hand. I wrote the whole thing by hand. And I would, I would take a, I would periodically stop and just take a month to type from notebooks. Uh, and in the process of typing, I would edit as I entered the words because if you have, I tried to write a thousand words a day. That was my goal always. Um, I didn't mean I always hit that goal, but I tried. When you pile up notebooks uh, and you have to type them, any chance you can get to get rid of any of these words as you enter them, you take it. So it was a useful editing process. And then when I had done that, I would print them out and, and, and I would actually bind them for, for easier uh, editing and I would actually just annotate these velo-bound documents in the margins and on the, I would print them on one side so I'd write new stuff on the, back sh- on the back of each of these and that became its own basically draft and I would then type those in and then I had the other stuff to type that I hadn't yet gotten to type so there was a lot of handwriting and typing and a mixture of the two. The documents really pile up. Um, but that was all in, the, in an effort to get to a, a, a full draft. And after that happened, that's when the editing really began. Uh, so 10 years, uh, most of that time, I was well aware of all of the things I needed to fix. It wasn't like it was 10 years where I spent that time in the confidence of uh, you know, a brush with the divine, for instance. It was... Uh, just building up a book bit by bit and knowing full well without having to hear from anybody else just how much work I needed to do to fix its problems. And then finally when I could get to the point where I could read it and not hear in my head all the missteps and the false notes, that's when I turned it over to other readers and that's when I learned how much work I had to do. So, yeah. Were you influenced by any writers that you liked in the Sure. Yeah. Sure, of course. Yeah. Um I love Joyce. I love Dubliners especially. I I think the sophisticated construction of that book is it just it almost overwhelms me. Um each sentence of course, but the way the sentences relate to each other and then the way individual stories relate to each other in a in a way that is an echo of earlier stories, but there's you get the feeling in, in that that he has made an argument for uh, things happening on the, on two sides of town that evoke each other, but are not actually uh, rhymes. They're not actually the same people. The the priest in the sisters is not the priest referred to at the beginning of Araby, but for a second you think it is the same guy, and and that itself is remarkable because what he's saying is. It isn't the same guy, but in fact, the same story is happening on the other side of town. And there's something gorgeous about the way he he sort of prismatically captures the whole world just by hinting at the fact that there is someone else somewhere else doing the same thing that this other person is doing. Um, 
So anyway, that, that very subtle architecture of that book has always impressed me. Marquez is someone who's always uh, stuck with me. 100 Years of Solitude, the extraordinary ambition of that book, the ability he has in that book to uh, demonstrate the inheritance of traits over over the generations, the unconscious playing out from one generation to the next of storylines that people don't even know they're they're playing out. You have the privilege of of a kind of trans-historical perspective on these characters, and you can see how someone a couple generations earlier is just like this other person, but they can't see it because they don't know that person. And he's giving you something like an omniscient perspective on this entire run of people. It's really a breathtaking thing. Um, and, uh, and his prose style is something I've admired as well. He's got some of Hemingway's uh, straightforward, just-the-facts quality, but there's also a little bit of Flaubertian kind of... Uh, uh, filigree in the sentences so I, I like I think he hits a sweet spot between um, telling it as it is and telling it as it as he'd like it to sound I, yeah I love Hemingway too yeah Hemingway Fitzgerald Dostoevsky Tolstoy Nabokov Flaubert a lot of I mean I'm mentioning a lot of people who are long gone sounds like I haven't read anything recently I love contemporary writers as well uh, George Saunders uh, Marilyn Robinson uh, there's a lot of wonderful writing happening now. Annie Prue, Annie Prue's short stories are so remarkable. Um, Alice McDermott, my teacher. Who else? What else? Yeah. Oh my God! Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, how much time do we have? I can. I could talk all night about that. First of all, Alice McDermott herself is such an extraordinary um, teacher. Things are are very easy for her, and she makes what she has the unique uh, ability. And this is not just a, a matter of talent; this is a matter of heart to convey just how easy things can be with enough effort. Which I think is not, it's 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 a sign of her humanity that she's not hoarding her insights. She wants to give the, of them as freely as possible. And it's what's interesting about that is that she wants to tell you how to do everything. And you realize in, the tell, in, in her attempt to do that, you see how easy it actually is for her and not for others. But at the same time, it, it does inspire you to think that it's possible to do these things. Um, so when you're in the presence of someone who could potentially just be, have airs about everything, because she's such a, such a luminary, such an important presence in American letters, and decides because of her humanity, to be decent all the time, gentle and generous. It's very inspiring. And it makes you try to think in the noblest possible ways about your own work. Uh, and then Stephen Dixon was such an incredible influence because he, uh, he, was, oh, he always had his hands dirty with the ink of composition. I mean, he typed everything on, on manual typewriters. He typed all of our notes from workshop on manual typewriters. He even typed up a little list of things that we, and um, journals we could send to, which is the only conversation I ever had in all of my years about the professional side of things, was Stephen Dixon's mimeographed list of journals, a lot of whose editors were not there any longer, which is the beautiful thing about MFA programs and MA programs. You don't don't really get a lot of talk about the profession of writing, thankfully, uh, because the conversations are about how to how to think like a writer, how to read like a writer, they don't actually sully the the game up, I think. Um, anyway, and Jean McGarry is, is another terrific writer there who's a terrific intellect. Uh, Tristan Davies, the place is just filthy with really brilliant minds. Uh, and the other students were a great influence on, on me too.
So yeah, I think MFA programs in general are a great idea, especially if you don't have to pay for them. Maybe only if you don't have to. I don't think it would make any sense to go if you... Uh, Hopkins gives good, good financial support to its students, and Irvine gives full, uh, full rides to all six people they admit every year with a tuition uh, remittance and a, and a fellowship. So nobody pays to go to that program. I don't think it, I don't think it makes sense to put down $30,000 a year on an MFA program and put yourself in a position of having all that debt because there's enough pressure on a writer to begin with. Well, I did a one-year MA at Hopkins, uh, and I had an opportunity, basically, to just continue. Uh, so it, it was time to write a little money, as I just said. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was a stipend. And uh, I just knew that I wasn't fully baked yet. Uh, so why not take a chance? That was the unique, um, one of the unique benefits of Hopkins at the time was that it was a Master's of Arts program, not a Master of Fine Arts. So it wasn't a terminal degree. It was the second oldest program, I think, in the country after the Iowa program, and uh, it had just been established as an MA program rather than an MFA. And so there was just a boon in that because I could actually technically still go on and get an MFA and it wouldn't be redundant. Um, the MA at Hopkins would have been the same on the job market, would have been received in the same way. It would have been plenty to get a job with if you had publications. But I just decided to go for more. <laughs> Yeah, at some point in the composition of the thing, I, I had been reading Lear, teaching Lear, and I thought of that line, and I got my title from it, uh, because it dovetailed with so many of my concerns already. At one point, I was calling the book The Real Estate of Edmund Leary, which I thought was a nice title. I liked it because it, res it resonated with the idea of what it is that you actually leave behind, what your legacy as a person is, as I say in the book, what's really important. But I thought the name being in the title was a little parochial. I'd, I wanted something a little more abstract, something grander, something that might be the wrapping around a bigger book, uh, and not just in length, but you know, hopefully in kind of thematic significance. When you put the name of a character in a title, you're, 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 there, there's an elegance to that, but there's a kind of, uh, kind of uh, anchoring that that does to the narrative sometimes. Unless it's something like Charming Billy, in which there's a, uh, a modification there's a there's a there's a nice pun in that title that lifts the word Billy up out of that realm that I'm talking about, or unless it's just Anna Karenina or Jernigan or something where the name is just the name of the book and that's that it's that's its own kind of grandeur. Yes. Is near your paper Shakespeare play? No, I think my ah oh boy, um, uh, Lear is amazing. It's probably the best one. I mean, it's maybe better than Hamlet in a lot of ways. I don't know. Uh, my favorite one of his plays? Uh, it's not Macbeth, I can tell you that. I love, Mac I, I love. I actually love all of his plays, but Macbeth is so dark. It's so dark. Macbeth says at one point, I am in blood so steep that to return were the same as to go o'er. He's like, I'm, I've killed all these people. I might as well kill some more, right? Which is the thesis of that play, in a sense. That's where he goes wrong. That's the tragedy of that play. Um, Hamlet, I guess Hamlet is my favorite play of his. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, the speeches in that play are amazing. You could go all night talking about the great Shakespeare plays. Even the bad ones are good. Pericles is a great play. Timon of Athens. Um, 
I did. I did a lot of research. Yeah, I did. And, and uh, you know, actual research in books and periodicals and, and the internet and also conversations where I could. You don't, you try not to bother people too much as a fiction writer because you feel like a real kind of a mosquito. Uh, but uh, where I could ask questions, I did. Yeah. No, thankfully, no. I'm I'm already into my other my next book, and and I'm not teaching anymore. I'm I'm writing full time. I was teaching as a high school teacher, so I would start. I could only really write with a clear head when I had gotten my papers graded, and uh, that would often mean I would start at midnight or one in the morning at times, and write for a couple hours and just fall into bed. Uh, and I did that for years. I was in a state of nearly hallucinatory sleep deprivation for about half a decade. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think it'll take that long. I sure hope not. Yeah. This seems to be this phenomenal success, the view, and now you're, you're it, you're hot. I called the library to reserve your book, and I was 84. Oh, my goodness. Wow. How many books did they order? Two? <laughs> We gotta get some more books in that library. <laughs> oh, good, good. They have more money in the county library than the city library. But my real question is: you have a manuscript. So many people have a manuscript and cannot get it published. Right. How did it happen? Did they find? How did that happen? Well, I, I, I think. You, there, you have, there are two paths. One is you have an agent, and the other is you self-publish. There is no publishing without an agent. I, worked a, I was at Grove Atlantic for a summer between Hopkins and Irvine, reading unsolicited manuscripts for an editor there named Elizabeth Schmitz, who uh, I believe was the editor of Cold Mountain, uh, which saved that press. They were going to go under, and Cold Mountain... I mean, not that they actually were going to go under, but they were really close to it. Cold Mountain sold... So many millions of copies. Anyway, I was my whole job was to read unsolicited things and write letters of rejection. It was it was a very sad summer. <laughs> I was about to go into my MFA program, and I had a full and burgeoning heart. And I spent a lot of time writing these letters. I crafted them lovingly. I read every word of these books, and uh, I tried my hardest to convey why we weren't taking them in the voice of Elizabeth Schmidt. Schmidt. Um, so I saw firsthand what it means to send a book to somebody without an agent. It it means very it very seldom. I have a friend who published a book with Soho House Soho Press, which does take unsolicited manuscripts. He a year after submitting it, they he heard from them. They pulled it off the slush pile, and it did it did quite well. Uh, but it's very rare. I sent my book to my agent. I had a couple of. Uh, of blurbs in advance, which probably got it read. It's probably the only reason it got it read as quickly as it did. I sent it on a Friday night. My agent and I met on Monday. He represented me three days after I sent it to him. And he sold it less than a month later. Um, so it was, it, was, it, was, it was probably, I would say, uh, hugely contingent upon my having, having had a little bit of advance notice. I sent the entire book as an attachment. I didn't query anybody. I just I, I attached a Microsoft Word document in my letter and I sent the whole 750-page thing. Because I figured, why give people uh, two chances to reject you? Why not just give them one? 
which, if you think about it, psychologically makes an awful lot of sense. If you're, if you're sending somebody something and saying, can I send you more, you know, you're putting yourself in a really bad position, even though that's the industry standard. Um, send a query. If they say yes, send the rest. I just cut the middleman out and sent the whole book. Uh, so it was, it was a lucky turn of events, I think, that I had uh, built up relationships with other writers whose work I had edited, for instance, for them and read carefully and done so just as a friend without any, any expectation. But when it came time uh, for me to submit, they were happy to read my book and they liked it and they said nice things. I mean, I, you have to write something that someone likes. They're not going to say something nice if they don't, unless they're just saying the most kind of worthless palaver, and that you know that you, that you can see what that is right away on the other side of that blurb, I think. Um, yeah. Yes. What percentage do you have to give, do you give your agent? Do you have to give uh, everyone. Everybody gives agents fifteen percent. Every agent gets fifteen percent. That's fifteen percent of the profits of the book, or before? Uh, no, of the whatever I get, he gets fifteen percent. It's not profits. It's it's it's. We were talking about this is a, like a seminar on publishing right now. Uh, they, you're you're you get a certain amount of money uh, for for you know credited to your account for each book you sell, um, and it's a very small percentage of the cover price. It would shock you. I don't even want to talk about it. Um, yeah, but that's the percentage of the cover price, and then the agent takes fifteen percent of that. The government takes another forty percent, forty five. Uh, it goes very fast, but yeah. Yo, uh, yes, actually, we're we're wrapping a deal today. I got a call earlier. Um, I can't say who, but yeah, there's there's it. Just the movie rights are selling. Those are also not big amounts anymore. It's interesting. And there was a day not that long ago, half a decade ago or so, where um, movie deals could be something that you know you could live on. But the industry has collapsed in many ways. It's fascinating how much Hollywood... Um, the only movies they make now are, are Transformers movies. and uh, so, so things aren't getting optioned for a ransom anymore. If it gets optioned at all, that's just the right to buy it later. They can option it for very little. And then they, if they make the movie, they pay you. But um, they, they, most things don't get made. So it stops at the option level. It's hard for me to see it too, but then again, Katsuo Ishiguro, uh, he once he he wrote the remains of the day to be an unfilmable book, uh, and look what happened. So I mean, there are geniuses that can make something out of anything, and I'm not one of the. I mean, I would never know how to make a movie out of this, but there's somebody whose job it is potentially. I don't see it. Thank you. Yeah, and there's a lot of interiority in the book. You can actually the, the 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 art form that is the novel has access to something that no other art form has access to in quite the same way, which is interiority. Uh, visual artists don't get access to that. Um, movies only get access to it when we have the voiceover, which feels so often like an interpolating, in, interfering consciousness in the movie. Um, yeah, I agree. I I would I would think a lot would be lost. It's not. It's the least action novel since the remains of the day. I would say, <laughs> maybe even less action than that book. At least he goes and drives somewhere for a lot of the time in that book. 
Uh, yeah, I agree with you entirely. I mean, there, my dinner with Andre might be less action than this. Anyone knows my dinner with Andre? Just two people sitting at a, talking at a table. Yeah, because you see where it's heading, right? Yeah. And yet, you know, what I find interesting is that um, we as people find a way to adapt to our circumstances, and that's the triumph of people's ingenuity. Uh, Eileen, at the end of this book, is never going away from that house. She's going to stay there, presumably, for the rest of her days. And it's never going to be quite the house she wanted. But she has made some peace with that. And I, I tried to, I mentioned Marquez before because um, I, I, I tried to apply some of those principles to this book and the, the repetition of themes through the generations. You see Eileen's mother, Bridgie, who is named one time by her, by her husband in passing. And in, a, in, a, in, a, in one of the more intimate moments in the book, he calls her Bridgie. We never hear her name otherwise. And I wanted that to be an omission that you felt that her her identity had been effaced in a way by this experience. She's the she's the immigrant who has fallen into the maw of America. The expectations are not fulfilled. She, but she has dreams. She goes out to see mansions in L.A. in in, in uh, Long Island to clean them, and has a vision of a world that never comes true for her. Um, anyway, we see her at the end, near the end of her life, taking care of her grandson. Ad- admonishing Eileen to try to experience moments of joy, be in the moment. So she has taken, she has found a way to be to have peace with the disappointments, and I, I think Eileen does the same thing. Anybody else? I've gone on for so long. I'm so sorry. Uh, does anyone have any other questions? Yes. I had a pretty good idea at the beginning and I had a very good idea about halfway through and I wrote <coughs> toward that ending for a few years. <coughs> Would have loved to have hurried up to get to it. But no, I had it in, I had it in mind, yeah. Mm-hmm. And did Eileen turn out to be in the end the person who thought she was? She, I think she, she became softer. I think she became. Um, they, they, I didn't know. I, God, I didn't know there would be any Sergey in the book uh, when I sat down to write it. I didn't know that. I had no idea Eileen would have an affectionate relationship with this Russian immigrant. Um, I could never have predicted that I would write a departure scene like the one for Eileen and Sergey, where they say goodbye, and uh, they're sitting there breaking a muffin together across the table. Uh, no way would I have known that that was coming. But I did have a sense that it would end where it ended with Eileen in that house, back in that house, and uh, with Connell having a moment he has in front of the class, which obviously goes back to the earlier scene in the book with Ed in front of his own class. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, I certainly never received a letter like that from my father. Uh, but it was, it's easy to imagine getting a letter like that from my father because of what I said earlier about his tenderness and his humanity. And uh, so 
I just imagined what it would be like for this character to know what he's facing and to be cognizant of the potential damage to the sun through all these experiences and to try to plant a little seed, a kind of Easter egg to be found later. Maybe not as late as it turns out because Eileen, for her different reasons, loses that letter. We get the feeling she didn't quite lose it entirely and maybe she put it away. Uh, unconsciously anyway but yeah I, I I figured he would want to have a say it's the only time we get his point of view in the book at all and it's not really his point of view it's in a letter and he's dead at that point anybody else? well thank you so much for coming I would, I would be happy to <laughs> sign any books if you want me to sign anything and uh, chat some more if you'd like